Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter One, The Riddle House. The villagers of Little Hangleton still called it the Riddle House, even though it had been many years since the Riddle family had lived there. It stood on a hill overlooking the village, some of its windows boarded, tiles missing from its roof, and ivy spreading unchecked over its face. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Book four! Book four, your favorite book, Vanessa? I'm really excited to be in book four. Like, stuff happens. I'm excited to be in book four, too. I feel like everything we talked about in last week's wrap episode about, like, the pieces being put together in the first three books so that there can be this exploration of, like, the source of evil. Does it come from a single evil source? Does it come from institutions or complacency? All the building blocks have been put in place, and now we get to see the next four books, which are all, you know, stylistically pretty different, much longer, much more involved in terms of plot. Like, that all starts today. Right? Yeah. The rest of our journey through the Harry Potter series begins today. 
Yeah. And these to me, Matt, are where the books become emotionally resonant. I mean, book four immediately starts talking about the muggle world in a different way. We meet a character who's a veteran. I find these books more and more emotionally engaging once we get to book four. They grow up. The books grow up, kind of like the characters do, right? I mean, you think about the difference between 11 and 14. Like, there's a lot of growth that happens there, and that's also what the books represent. Yeah. Well, everyone, as always, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And today's Every Flavor Bean conversation is going to be about Frank and what we think that wizard counterparts were doing in various wars over the last couple hundred years. I mean, the the wizards must have been involved, right? But since we don't have that as part of Muggle history, we're going to do speculation. (laughs) The best kind of history. We're going to speculate wildly. Fabricated speculation. That's right. (laughs) So, Vanessa, we are beginning book four with a bang. And a story about tradition. We're, we're thinking about the tradition of telling stories. And you're going to tell us something traditional about traditions from your own life. True. So starting probably five years ago now, we started celebrating Passover as a family. Passover is my favorite Jewish holiday. It is Jewish Thanksgiving, essentially. There are all these food rituals. You tell stories. It's a good deed to get drunk. It's just like a lot of fun. There's a game for kids built in. And Casper comes up from New York or prior. He was local. But Casper always comes to my Passover Seder. And Casper is a lot of fun with kids. And so kids, my kids really enjoy it when Casper comes up for this. And it's a good time. And so two years ago now, Amy, who was seven or eight at the time, was helping me set the table for Passover. And she's very indulgent of me. I have a lot of my grandparents' old Judaica. And so she's like, whose candlesticks were these? And I'm like, these are my grandpa's on my mom's side. And she's like, and whose matzah plate is this? And she just like really indulges me in all of my stories. And then as we were finishing setting the table, she was like, "Um, Vanessa, my friend Annabelle is doing a Seder this weekend. And I told her that I was doing a Seder this weekend too. And when she asked me why, I said, because I'm a little bit Jewish. Is that okay that I said that? And I was like, it is absolutely okay that you said that. Why do you feel a little bit Jewish? And she essentially said to me, because I do all of the Jewish traditions, right? We do Passover. We celebrate Rosh Hashanah and we break fast together for Yom Kippur. And Matt, as you know, we do Hanukkah every year and we make a big deal out of these festivals. And I, A, of course, love. (laughs) Amy is now identifying as a little bit Jewish. But also, there are all these, like, traditional definitions of what makes someone Jewish that I'm not a big fan of. They have to do with bloodlines. And I loved Amy's definition of a little bit Jewish, which is, I engage in the traditions of Judaism. And therefore, I would say she doesn't just have to be a little bit Jewish. She can be as Jewish as she wants to be. But I do think that that's one of the things that makes us whatever identity, right, is engaging in the traditions of that identity. and. That is my story. That's such a lovely story, Vanessa. And I'm so excited that Amy's a little bit Jewish also. And I love partaking in in your family traditions with you. Hanukkah is great. Since we moved up here to Cambridge, we started a new tradition of having Hanukkah with your family. And we can't wait to continue that tradition. I have a a fascinating etymology for tradition. The word tradition comes from two words. The first word is trans, which means change or across. 
And the, the other word is the addition part comes from the Latin verb dare, which means to give. So it means to like give over, to hand across, which makes a lot of sense, right? You hand these traditions across through time. We can see this happening in your story. You are handing over your traditions to Amy, right? And that's what makes her a little bit Jewish is they become her traditions. She can claim them as her own in a real way, right? Because they were given to her by you. But the other thing is that the word literally also can be used to mean to betray, to hand over. To betray literally means to hand over. And sometimes in ancient texts, the same word is used to hand over means either to betray or to give over, right? And so part of that has me thinking also about like when you hand traditions over, they get changed, right? When you give something to someone else, they practice it a little bit differently. They do it a little bit differently. That's why traditions change over time. They can have continuity, but within that continuity, there is change. So someone like Amy, who might not have been able to be considered Jewish at some point in the past, now gets to say, hey, I'm a little bit Jewish. And that's not a betrayal in the bad sense. It's a handing over. It's a giving over, right? right? And I love this idea that internal to the idea of what a tradition is, is change is the fact that it's developed, is the fact that people take it up and make it their own and then hand it to somebody else who will take it up and make it their own, which means they're not static, they're dynamic and they're alive and they live with the people who embrace them. I love that etymology, Matt. And also, right, like traditions change us. And also, I'm sure that there are listeners of ours, Jewish listeners of ours, who are like, that is not what being Jewish is, right? That is not what being a little bit Jewish is. And, you know, you either are Jewish or aren't, right? Like, these are heavily contested identities, like Judaism. Yeah. I know the ins and outs to some extent of that. And I know that there are members of my family who would be upset that Amy is identifying as a little bit Jewish and that I just decided to sort of bestow that upon her and give her permission to say that to Annabelle at school on Monday. But yeah, I I know that I feel changed after every Passover. I feel reconnected to my faith. I, I love that idea that the traditions change and that they change us. Yeah. Well, Matt, should we do our first 30 second recap of book four? True to the spirit of this etymology, we're going to keep alive the tradition of doing 30-second recaps, and I will radically change what happened in this chapter. (laughs) I will betray the contents of the chapter in the next 30 seconds. I look forward to this. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So we're not at Four Privet, whatever. We're someplace else at the beginning of a book. We're in Little Hangleton, which is not Great Hangleton. And there were murders at the Riddle House. And everyone thinks it was Frank Bryce. And Frank Bryce, because Frank Bryce came back from the war. And that seems like a very judgmental to me. But Dot is sure. And they gossip about it. But it wasn't him. And he's he's waiting and caretaker for many years. And he sees a light flickering. And he goes in. And he overhears a conversation. And he hears, murder, murder. And he says, I'm just stand up to you. And I come in. And then this and then Snake comes in to get ner- milked, which is gross. And then, uh, and then Frank Bryce is killed. I missed a couple of things, but in the spirit of our tradition, there were appropriate betrayals, I think. Yeah. I think that if you had done a better job, you would have been betraying our tradition of you doing poorly at the 30-second recap. You know what? You're right. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready, Vanessa? I am. Oh, let me count you in. Three. Thank you. Two. One. Go. 
So Frank Price's life has been sort of ruined twice, once by the war, where he no longer likes to be around crowds, and second time by this murder accusation. So he is just living alone, taking care of this house, and he's used to people torturing him with the house and having fires, and so he goes up because there's a light on, and he overhears a conversation between Voldemort and Peter Pettigrew, and they're saying, we gotta wait until after the Quidditch World Cup, and they admit to killing Bertha Jorkins, and they're like, oh, we're gonna need Harry Potter. And then they kill Frank, and then Harry Potter wakes up because he's had a dream about the whole thing. That was excellent. I feel like you did great. Well, thank you, Matt. I did do a great job. (laughs) (laughs) So, Matt, I gotta say, I didn't see tradition a whole lot in this chapter. But one place I did see tradition was that it seems to be a tradition spanning generations to harass Frank. Like, Frank is just used to what he says are boys in the neighborhood causing destruction to the garden and to the property and just, like, teasing him. The way that it's described, and this seems to be something that I feel like is reflected out in the world, is that there are certain people whose society agrees it's, like, just okay to harass. And this harassment will just keep continuing in this rite of passage way. And yeah, I'm wondering about your thoughts as to whether or not that's a tradition. It seems like older boys probably like orient younger ones into doing this. And it seems to kind of have all the hallmarks of tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great observation. I mean, the question you're asking is about scapegoating, right? Right. There are, there's lots of scholarly discourse around how scapegoating is a tradition across traditions, that many different traditions have their different versions of scapegoating, whether they're, you know, cultural or religious or other kinds of traditions. So one of the things I was thinking, especially as you formulated your question, was just, and this is going to be maybe a little bit tenuous or maybe a little bit, I'm walking a little bit further out on a limb than I might like to, but that, you know, one thing traditions like to offer or like to assert to their adherents that they offer are answers, right? The tradition offers the resources with which you can navigate the world or the situation. I think traditions often do that. And so when you have what arises in this chapter, which is an unsolved mystery, it needs to provide an answer. So just to kind of recap for our listeners, the first chapter opens with the deaths of these three riddles at the riddle house and the coroner, no one can figure out how they died. They, they they seem to all have been in good health. They die really suddenly, but there's no evidence of any kind of foul play. The tongue-in-cheek line from the text is that they were in perfect health apart from being dead or something like that, right? And so this is an unanswerable mystery. And Frank, who is a person who, who has returned from the war, he doesn't like crowds or loud noises, we're told in the text, which, you know, indicates to us that he probably has some sort of post-traumatic condition totally understandable since he returned from war. That means he keeps distance from the community. He doesn't hang out with them and so forth. He becomes the easy answer to this problem. He was close to to where this crime happened or to where these deaths occurred. No one really knows him very well. So he just becomes the scapegoat and he becomes an answer that they can offer to each other so they don't have to worry about what actually happened, which is like mysterious and evil and and misunderstood forces operating without their knowledge, right? Like that, the tradition doesn't want to give that as the answer. They want to say, oh, we know the answer and it's Frank. So everyone steer clear of Frank. Everybody prank Frank. 
Yeah, so I think that's right. I mean, this is in your story, you spoke about the happy and pretty side of traditions, which is how they're passed from family to family. And I think that's right and true. And I think a lot of us probably experience that. But also the way that traditions are handed down often can perpetuate versions of stories that that do harm people or do scapegoat people. And the the way in which they're handed down maybe too easily or uncritically can lead to, to problems. So I think that you're right when you talk about when you talk about this being a tradition or like the ostracization and exclusion and ridicule of Frank and the accusation of Frank is a piece of knowledge that provides this community sort of a knowingness that that it wants, but is false, we know, and also leads to the kind of the further suffering of this guy who seems like he's already suffered a lot. Yeah. I think that there's another tradition happening here that I hadn't thought of until you made your point, which is I also think that the tradition of like toxic masculinity is being passed down. Hmm. So Matt, what the text says, right, is weeds were not the only thing Frank had to contend with either. Boys from the village had made a habit of throwing stones through the windows of the Riddle House. They rode their bicycles over the lawns Frank worked so hard to keep smooth. Once or twice they broke into the house as a dare. They knew that Frank's devotion to the house and grounds amounted to an almost obsession. And it amused them to see him limping across the garden. And, right, like... That kind of bullying also seems like a tradition that gets passed down, that it's considered tough or masculine or macho or whatever. It's just interesting that it's called out that it's it's boys, only because I think that there's something about patriarchy that tries to condition boys to be this kind of, you know, rambunctious slash violent. That essentially, in order to be this kind of kid, you have to be shown that it's okay to be this kind of person. I don't think it's like instinctive to like enjoy watching a man limp and get upset. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I agree with you. I believe toxic masculinity is toxic and pervades culture. But I also think that most people in town think that he actually did it. I think that they really yeah. believe he did it, right? And I think if anything, now 50 years or whatever later, there might be something about like the scary haunted house boys daring to ride through the through the yard because this guy who's a murderer that was never convicted is I mean it, it may be like a dare thing and maybe that's a toxic thing but it, it I don't know I I I thought you were going to say with a toxic masculinity I thought you were going to say is how come a guy who goes off to war because this is where I see yeah. toxic, toxic masculinity yes, how come too. a guy who goes off to war and comes back and and is experiencing a traumatic response to what he has seen is ridiculed as kind of maladapting to the world as it is rather than saying like, oh, actually, men can be affected by traumatic things and he deserves care. To me, that to me, that's where I thought you were going with the toxic masculinity. It's a culture that can't receive veterans back with like some kind of understanding that they are suffering and they are allowed to be vulnerable and and scared and all those things. Right. Oh, totally. I also think that it is a tradition that we send off young men to war. Like that yes. is a tradition that was started thousands of years ago. And I cannot believe that it is not a tradition that we've interrupted yet. <laughs> yeah. That we're like, do you know what we should do with 16-year-old boys, 18-year-old boys? We should send them off and then not know how. To... What's wild about it is exactly your point that Frank is someone who, according to the text, had a quote unquote bad war, which my understanding from yeah. an interview that we did a while ago with Margot Livesey is a, a British expression, right? That like there were people who had good wars and bad wars and you could have a bad war and 
that it impacted you differently if you did. And Frank is someone who is said to have had a bad war. And the fact that we as a culture, as a society, as a world have sent people off to war for thousands of years and have not figured out how to deal with them when they come back is just like a wild, wild thing to me. We have a tradition of parades to welcome people back. And then once the parade is over, our traditions around welcoming back veterans are none. Yeah. And I think it's not an accident that this book starts with a veteran of of a major world war, right? Because what's happening is this is kind of the beginning of this major wizarding war that's going to take up, occupy the next four books and which end, you know, the series ends just before all that caretaking has to happen, right? The series kind of ends with the parade. Not really. I mean, there's not a little parade, but we have the good news of the victory at the end of book seven. And then a gap with an epilogue, which is, you know, 19 years later, and we don't have the all the stuff in between, all the people who are recovering and grieving and and dealing with all the ramifications of everything that they have lived through, which is its own way of kind of covering over like what the costs of of this are. Now, the, the books do count the costs. I mean, you know, we have the first student death in this book and we have the first described death in this chapter because Frank Bryce is killed, right? And so the books are trying to say, yeah, these losses are real. But there is something in that by starting with a veteran. I think it's doing exactly what you're saying, which is calling forth this tradition of how we face up to evil when we find it. What do we do? Who pays the price? How do we care for those who do pay that price? What prices do they pay? All those things are... Yeah, repeated in our histories and and in that sense, traditional in our histories. Yeah. And one of the things that I know I've mentioned before, but I really do think that the books do so well is demonstrate the ways that trauma begets more trauma, right? We see this with Harry. Because his parents were killed, he gets raised by the Dursleys, which is its own punishment. Because he's raised by the Dursleys, he doesn't get to find out he's a wizard, right? Like, these things just compound one another. And it's the same with Frank, right? He had a bad war, which means that there was only really a certain kind of job that he was going to thrive in. And because he was the kind of person who was going to thrive in a job where he spent a lot of time alone, that was going to be suspicious to the world. And the ways that grooves get worn in on certain bodies and society just keeps punishing them. I know that that's not the same thing as tradition, but it's it's just like once once we've discarded someone in some way, society wants to just keep discarding them and making it harder and harder for them to go back to having a life of peace. And something that friend of the podcast, Stephanie Paulsell does, is I think she really brilliantly, I know that this wasn't her idea, but it's one of the ways she talks about it, is she talks about Virginia Woolf as a war death, even though Virginia Woolf took her own life because she did in 1944, shortly after she found out that she was on, you know, a Nazi watch list. Stephanie talks about Woolf as a casualty of World War II. And I think you could argue that Frank is, that even though he died, whatever, 50 years after the war, I think you draw a a straight line from the war to the kind of death that he had. I mean, I think this, Vanessa, this links to everything you started our conversation with around the idea of scapegoating, 
which is that the one who comes back and is already an outcast is easy to make outcast again and again and again. And I think that's the spirit of, of your conversation about the kids who antagonize him and also about the gossip. And also, I mean, to me, that's really where the question of like what kind of masculinity counts as masculinity becomes important because the reason, as you were saying, the reason why he is not welcomed back in the way he ought to be and supported the way he ought to be and and understood the way he ought to be, the way my Frank isn't, is because he's not living up to this ideal of what it means to be a man, which is to come back and stiff upper lip and and not talk about what happened and just move on, which Frank needs something else, right? I mean, one of the other places I saw a tradition here was like, you know, no one has lived in this house for generations, for decades. Yeah. And he is keeping up the house every day. You know what I mean? Like, to mm-hmm. me, there's something really traditional about that, which is like, this is tradition from the positive sense rather than the negative sense, more yeah. like the sense you were talking about in your story, which is, here's a person who is an outcast, who has suffered too much, who hasn't been given what he needs to, to reckon with those traumas, but he has developed a way of life that helps him through his days, which is, he cares for the plants, he keeps the grounds. You know, he makes sure the house, the windows are repaired. He goes like that kind of routine is actually sort of the I mean, this is an analogy that Stephanie Paulsell taught me in my class in one of the classes I took with her, too, which is like tradition is sort of like the rope bridge across a big chasm that, you know, you, you have your guide rails and you're able to walk across this chasm. It just kind of gives you the direction you need, gives you the handholds you need to keep putting one foot in front of the other. It reminds me of what Frank has here, which is like he doesn't have a community that supports him. He doesn't have people who understand him. He doesn't have all the things that a person in this situation probably needs. What he has are these grounds to keep. And so he day after day, he does that. And that's kind of what gets him through. And honestly, I think that at the end of the chapter, you know, Frank, having overheard the conversation between Wormtail and Voldemort about a murder they had already committed and a murder they were anticipating committing, having been caught, he walks in with some boldness and courage and tries to lie his way out of it and say, (laughs) say, you're not going to get away with this in a really kind of admirable way, a way that I think no one in the community would have expected of him and maybe he might not have expected of himself. But he does have this kind of boldness and reserve of dignity in him that when he stands in front of them and just stands up to them in that moment, even though he's an elderly man, you know, partially disabled. Yeah, I think that there's there's something else about tradition. There's, there's, he has found a way of life in his little corner of little Hangleton that allows him to carry through. And something about that helps him to be courageous in this moment, even though it ends poorly for him, obviously. Yeah. I love both of those points. One, I think that you're talking about his commitment to the garden to me really speaks to the difference between a ritual and Hmm. a tradition, Hmm. right? Like there's something monastic that he's engaging with here, right? Caring for the plants, even though no one lives in the house to quote unquote, uh, appreciate the plants, right? right. And if he had like a young apprentice, you know, I water the daisies on Tuesdays, right? I think could become a tradition, but right. Like it seems more ritualistic because of this lack of passing on, Hmm. but I might be really splitting hairs on that. No, I think that's right. I mean, when you first started making that point, I was thinking, but you can have a personal tradition, but your story and the etymology I gave really was about like handing something on. It is the handing on to somebody else is actually really crucial in it. And this has been handed on to him, but yeah, you're right. There's not a sense that he's going to hand it on to somebody else. So I don't think you're splitting hairs. I think that's a, a good distinction or a useful one. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. You know, like you, I found some difficulty discerning where and how to excavate the theme of tradition from this chapter, except there is one line from the very beginning of the chapter, which is meant to describe like the handing down of the story within the community of Little Hangleton, the story of what happened to the riddles and and how they died and who was at fault, which to me is like the most perfect definition of what a tradition is. Ooh. And the line is, the story had been picked over so many times and had been embroidered in so many places that nobody was quite sure what the truth was anymore. And to me, like, <laughs> yes. that is like, I wish in Bible study classes, I wish I could say, like, this is a definition of a scriptural tradition, right? <laughs> like, Excuse I mean, me, let about, me pull out Goblet of Fire and read you this definition. Right. <laughs> that's right. But, right, like, the, the Christian Gospels, the earliest one was written, you know, maybe maybe 20, at best, 20 years after Jesus 
died. Like this is, these are stories that have been picked over so many times and been embroidered in so many places that nobody is quite sure what the truth is anymore. They've been handed down again and again and again before they're even written. And then once they're written, they're handed down again and again and again, and people interpret them differently and so forth. And like, I, I think that's true of most scriptural traditions. I can only confidently speak of my own, but that's just the nature of storytelling. We hand down stories. And I think what this tells us, kind of like your original story about handing down your traditions to Amy, like the point is not the truth at the root of the story. It's the handing down. It's that the story facilitates these bonds, that it brings us in the community with the past and with the future and with those who are closest to us and maybe with those who are far away in time or place. Like, that's what's sacred about the tradition, not like some kernel that is indisputable and intact from any original. At least that's that's what this heretic thinks. <laughs> Last summer, I was asked to participate in my beloved friend Chloe's wedding, and she wanted me to talk about the breaking of the glass at the end of the ceremony. And not only is the breaking of the glass at the end of a Jewish wedding ceremony traditional, but starting the conversation about it, it is traditional to say there are a lot of different theories about why we break the glass at the end of a ceremony. And I was like, do I go meta again of like, now it's a tradition for me to tell you that, that there's a lot of, th- yeah, that there are a lot of different theories. Well, like there are right. And, yeah. and any sort of rabbi who goes up and shares a theory and doesn't mention that it is one of many, I think is doing a poor job of officiating <laughs> that part of the ceremony. Cause I, right. Like part of the tradition is admitting that like, we're doing this in part because people have been doing it for a long time and we want to be a part of humanity. We want to be part of the people who are doing things and being in communication with past generations. And Again, to quote Stephanie Paulsell, right? Like we do things often because we don't understand them in order to understand them. And yeah, I love that line from Stephanie Paulsell and I've used it myself in lots of situations. But I think we can also see the dark side of that in this chapter as well, right? Yes. If you do things because you don't understand them in order to understand them, there might be people on the wrong side of the understanding, like Frank (laughs) in this chapter, who feel the weight of it and who are excluded from it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Frank Bryce is a patron saint of a lot. I I really love him as a character in the way that he can help us think about about a a lot of different ways of victim blaming and and discarding people. But I will say, Matt, my favorite tradition, I think that I engage in, at least on a regular basis in my real life, is described in this chapter. And that is gathering around food or a drink and gossiping. And this is a tradition as old as time. And I'm not going to lie, it is a proud tradition that I love deeply. And so I appreciate that this text is pointing out to me something that I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is when is it good gossip versus bad gossip or neutral gossip? And I am pro-neutral gossip. I, I would argue that a lot of neutral gossip is actually good gossip, but we really see the negatives of gossip here. Where, And I would say that one of the problems with this gossip is that it is gossip with a thesis. The thesis is, let's prove to ourselves that Frank is a bad guy. And so everybody is only telling stories and sharing information that lives up to that thesis. Whereas what I would love to see in this gossiping circle is one counter narrative, is one 
But Frank loves plants. And isn't that great? I love that point. I think there's a, isn't, doesn't somebody say something? Doesn't someone just say he had a bad war? Poor Maybe Frank that's all it was. Ah, now, said a woman at the bar. He had a hard war, Frank. He likes the quiet life. That's no reason to. And then she's interrupted by a person who says, who else had a key <laughs> okay. to the back door then? Barked the cook. It's the cook and Dot that yeah, seem yeah, like yeah. they're really causing a lot of the problems here. <laughs> yeah. Don't interrupt the person who's trying to complicate the gossip. That's right. Now, can I ask, this I, This may not have anything to do with tradition. This is a, a question I have for you of kind of character interpretation. Hmm. Peter Pettigrew, while talking to Voldemort and being overheard by Frank Bryce, offers to, you know, go get a different muggle. He, he's not sure that they should wait for Harry Potter. They think it'd be easier to do what they need to do with someone other than Harry Potter. He can just go get somebody else for Voldemort to murder and Voldemort immediately accuses him of trying to abandon him and leave him to die. Because the the sense is that without these frequent milkings of Nagini, which I guess only Peter Pettigrew can facilitate, that Voldemort will not have strength to survive in his current state. What do you think about that, Vanessa? Because the way that Peter reacts to that accusation seems like he's caught a little bit. Like, did you get the sense that Peter is actually trying to get away and leave Voldemort to die? Or do you think he really is trying to go get another muggle and bring him back? What do you think? I mean, I think he's trying to leave Voldemort. I think he's trying to get away from Voldemort. That for you sure. Yes. Okay. For sure I don't you know think he is. Okay. Yeah. I don't think that this is super pleasant for Peter. No. Peter is someone who likes to run away into the sewers, right? And yeah. like, I think arguably the happiest Peter has been has been his scabbers when like, Nobody yeah. knew who he was. He was being fed and like sleeping in a comfy bed with a boy who was nice to him. Yeah. And so I don't know if he cares about whether or not Voldemort lives or dies. So I don't know if he would go and find someone else. But Peter's an opportunist. And so I think he's trying to create another opportunity for himself. That's interesting. Before revisiting this chapter, I hadn't thought about that. I had been thinking that Peter was just loyal to Voldemort because Voldemort was powerful. And that would only help Peter if Voldemort became powerful again because he would feel protected and safe from all the people who want to kill him, right? Yeah. Who are Death Eater, as we learned in the last book, who are now, you know, allies of Sirius Black. Like, he wants to be close to power. And so I was a little bit surprised. I was like, oh, maybe Voldemort's judging him too harshly here, because what he really wants to do is just get Voldemort resurrected as soon as possible so he could be safe. But, you know, you're right. I I think you're right. I think also, Voldemort's right. Voldemort is pretty good at predicting these things, but but you're more right than Voldemort. I think, <laughs> I think that, I think that. Thank you. He knows how cruel Voldemort is, and he knows he's never safe. Actually, no one's ever safe around Voldemort, and the safest he could be would be as, you know, Voldemort's still a wisp in an Albanian forest with some Horcruxes everywhere else, and him as a rat someplace else. I think that's probably right. Yeah. I also think if you're an opportunist, you need things to be changing in order for you to take advantage of something. Stagnancy doesn't allow for a new opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So, Matt, I have a counter question for you about Peter. Counter question. My counter question is, why do you think he's trying to convince Voldemort to not kill Harry? That's a good counter question. I I mean, before... Hearing your response to my question, I would have thought because Peter just wants Voldemort fully embodied as soon as possible because that's when he's best protected. 
Right. And not knowing the details of how this magic works, he probably thinks, boy, it seems a lot harder to get Harry. Why don't we just get somebody that's easier? Right. My answer now is a version of that. I think you're right. He's an opportunist and he wants to survive. And he knows that getting Harry is going to be riskier than any other thing. And as the embodied one in this partnership, he is going to have to take a lot of those risks. Yeah. For Voldemort's sake, right? So it's just he's trying to figure out the easiest way out and the safest way for him at each turn. And it seems that seems easier and less risky for him. Yeah. It's just interesting because we'll see in book seven that Harry saving Wormtail is going to cause Wormtail to not hurt Harry. And so it's interesting to think about whether Wormtail is already a little bit trying to protect Harry because that would be a sign of a certain level of humanity in him. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Or maybe kind of like with the hand at the end on something he's not even willing. It's just like the way the magic works. He, yeah. It, he wants to resist killing Harry. Uh, interesting. This was like a little mini Havruta on our way to our spiritual practice. Yeah. It's like the traditions of spiritual practices have worked on us so completely that we can't help but do them. We can't help but do them. That's right. Vanessa, now is the time when we will have our sacred reading practice for the week. We're continuing our Pardes practice with which we concluded the last book. Are you excited to do Pardes with me? I can't wait to do Pardes with you. So I've selected a line from the text, and I'm going to read it to you now. Thank you. And you are going to tell me the shot. Here's the line. What's that you're calling me? Said Frank defiantly. For now that he was inside the room, now that the time had come for some sort of action, he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. Mm. So what's going on here, the intended meaning of this sentence is Voldemort has just called Frank a muggle. And Frank has learned some new vocabulary, not, or heard some new vocabulary in this conversation here. Quidditch, and now he's hearing muggle. And so Frank is saying to Voldemort, like, it's this confrontational sentence of, like, what'd you say? But it's also, I think, genuinely curious of, like, what's that? Are you, You're calling it, like, I, I'm sure I'm supposed to be offended, but I literally don't know that word. But he's defiant in that. And he has stepped into this room where Peter and Voldemort are having this conversation in Nagini. And he's sort of reflected that he was scared prior to being in the actual confrontation moment. But now that he is in the middle of the confrontation, he's feeling brave and fine and is able to stand up for himself. And that that was also true when he was fighting in the war, that this courage would emerge for him. That's great. That's a great summary of the context for this line. Thank you. Now we're going to move on to Remez, which is the hint. And so this now we're going to look at like what more subtle meanings might be lying under the literal surface of the text. And for our practice, we do that by choosing a word from the line. And so I'm going to read the line to you again, Vanessa, and you can choose a word for us to think about. Great. What's that you're calling me? Said Frank defiantly. For now that he was inside the room, now that the time had come for some sort of action, he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. What word do you want to select for our hint? Let's do braver, Matt. Okay, great. Where can we think about bravery or courage in the Harry Potter series? Well, in order to be a Gryffindor, you have to be brave. That's one of the things that you are as a Gryffindor. I think that 
you, Matt, have often described the kind of bravery that is demonstrated in the Harry Potter books as a kind of courage without thinking. And Mm. so I don't know whether or not that is always true about bravery, but that is definitely what's happening to Frank in this moment. He's not given the opportunity to think. And so his courage comes because his thinking can't. He's now in the middle of this. Yeah, I think that there's a fuzzy line sometimes between recklessness and bravery, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that sometimes the Gryffindors exemplify the fuzziness of that line. I think, <laughs> you know, I think that you wouldn't call flying the Ford Anglia to Hogwarts brave. You'd call it reckless, right? <laughs> um, I'd call it idiotic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, and I, but I think that, but I think bravery means some risk taking, and so that line is blurry. I think one of the things here is that. The bravery for Frank was unintended because he goes into the house when he sees the flickering light thinking it's teenagers. And then the moment is is foisted upon him. He feels like he has to have this this confrontation, but he's not sure yet. And it's, be, it's because Nagini reports that he's in the hallway that he actually has to have this moment. What that makes me want to think about through the series is like those moments in the series when a person who does not expect or anticipate having to be brave finds bravery in the moment, right? Yeah. So like, I'm thinking about like, Neville in the common room at the end of book one, where he like stands up to Harry, Hermione and Ron just because he kind of had the opportunity to do so. And without even thinking, the moment arises and he's braver than he thinks he is. Right. Or Neville when he turns around and gets in the fight with Crab Goyle and Draco in book two. Right. Like discovering bravery that the situation kind of called out of him rather than rather than sort of the recklessness of the typical Gryffindor bravery. Or Neville in book five, when he's at the Ministry of Magic with Harry and he his like wand isn't working. So he starts using it like a stick. He's like, that's fine. <laughs> I'll just keep doing this. Vanessa, the third step in Pardis is Drosh. And this is when we think of the sermon that we would preach based upon this line. So tell me about the sermon you would preach from this line. I think I would talk about What rooms do you want to walk into? I sort of believe Hmm. that a lot of us find courage when we actually walk into rooms. And Frank has chosen this house, right? Like, this is the place that he's going to be loyal to. And I, I think it's a lovely choice for Frank. And so I think that I would want people to spend some time discerning, yeah, what what backyards do you want to be in in case you get called into a room? Where do you physically want to situate yourself? And who do you want to ally hmm. yourself with? So that when your courage needs to be called upon, you're in a room where you're happy to give it. Yeah. That's a great sermon. That's a sermon I want to hear. I think that's right. I think a lot of bravery is just choosing where you need to fight, what fight you're called to, or what, to use your less antagonistic analogy, like what room you want to step into, right? Like what, where's the place I belong and that I need to be? Yeah, I think that's a great, great sermon. What sermon would you want to preach, Matt? I think mine would be related to yours, but less sophisticated and wise than yours and related to the last point from Remes, which is, I think I would just want to talk about the nature of bravery, right? Like to think about bravery as as less like an attribute that we have or like a, a way of moving about the world, but like a well we draw from, right? Like, the, mm-hmm. uh, I think given everything that he's lived through, it sounds like Frank knew he was brave in the war. I don't know that people around the town recognized him as brave necessarily, just given the way they've excluded him and the kind of life he's led. But 
for Frank in this situation, when the moment of kind of crisis was brought upon him, that well was there for him, that well of something he could tap into to to feel his sense of confidence and and courage was was there for him. And I think I would just try to invite people to think about like, what wells do you ask them? What wells they draw from? Where are the places mm-hmm. where you feel like you can, you you have resources where you can draw from those wells the things that you you need. So I think I try to do something like that with my sermon, but it would all be in the service of inviting people to step into the right rooms. So I would probably have to refer to this really excellent sermon I heard by this colleague I know named Vanessa Zoltan. Mm-hmm. Yep. The final step, Vanessa, of Pardes is sowed, which is the secret, which. The first few times we've done Pardes, I have not liked the secret. It has seemed too secretive to me. But the last couple secrets, I feel like we've gotten some good secrets. We've gotten some really good secrets. So I'm going to read the sentence one more time, and then you will tell me the secret that has been revealed by it. Can't wait. What's that you're calling me? Said Frank defiantly. For now that he was inside the room, now that the time had come for some sort of action, he felt braver. It had always been so in the war. I'm really drawn to this what's that you're calling me. I was thinking the secret was there, too. Yeah. I don't know. Why does Voldemort think that Frank's a muggle? Right? Like, we know that people are wizards and witches and that they don't know about it. Harry didn't know. And I don't know what it is that makes Voldemort assume that Frank is a muggle. Well, Voldemort knew Frank, right? Because he he committed the murders, right? So he, yeah, Frank was like, around Yeah, but that doesn't mean time. you, like, know him personally. But isn't this... Voldemort's flaw, he underestimates the, exactly. the strengths of others. Oh, I see. That's I think your secret. that's my point. That's my secret. Yes. Is like everyone is magical, right? Like, I don't know. I think you're right. No, I think that's the secret too, because what we actually find is that I mean, Frank obviously dies. This his bravery does not serve him in this moment. But he knows Frank's name also, right? Like he knows yeah. who Frank is, but he calls him Muggle. He reduces him to this identity. But that kind of reductiveness is exactly Voldemort's downfall in the end, because he doesn't anticipate how house elves could confound him. He doesn't anticipate how these children could confound him. He doesn't actually give credit to the difference that bravery can make, the difference that stepping into a room and drawing from those deep wells can make. And it doesn't save everybody. People die in this book. Frank dies, and and later in this book, Cedric dies, and many others will die in this battle, but it's their collective kind of, you're right, this is the secret. You got it, Vanessa, and we just told everybody. <laughs> well, Matt, we did it together. Thank you, Vanessa, for this really wonderful exercise of Pardes. Thank you for leading us through such a wonderful Pardes. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. 
Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Claire. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. Um, I wanted to bless Ginny Weasley. I think she deserves so many blessings, but something I've been really reflecting on is how Ginny goes through this trauma in her first year at Hogwarts and then is just kind of not seen or the her needs are not being met because there's always some um, something bigger going on. So I particularly think of in chapter um, the chapter the Dementor, which is um, in book three when Harry you know passes out because the Dementor comes into their cabin and you know all the attention is on him and he's taken to Madame Pomfrey, but when Ginny. Um, when Harry looks at Ginny after the Dementor has left the cabin, he says that Ginny looks as bad as he feels because we know that she's reliving being possessed by Voldemort the year before. And yet Ginny is not given attention and she's not taken for special care, even though for her going back for a second year of at Hogwarts must be so terrifying because her only experience was being possessed by Voldemort. And then again, we see in the fourth book when the Death Eaters are marching after the Quidditch World Cup, um, all the adults who are there with the Weasleys go off to help, you know, the ministry and they leave Ginny with Fred and George um, like, couldn't one of the adults stayed? Because, again, this is the person who was possessing her and making her do these violent things, and these are his supporters. And so, again, she must be terrified, but there's just something bigger going on, so she's not seen. And the same when Harry thinks he's being possessed by Voldemort, and he doesn't even think to ask her, like... There's this huge, she's at the center of this huge trauma, and yet she is just constantly kind of 
pushed aside for something, um, quote unquote, bigger picture or more important. And so I just really want to bless Ginny and anyone who um, has faced any kind of trauma and has not been seen or taken care of. Claire, thank you so much for this voicemail. I think that Ginny being so thoroughly erased from book three is a deeply confusing choice to me that that Rowling made, but I love you reading so closely into it that it, it isn't an accident that Ginny is on the sidelines. It is actually in the design that we ignore victims in this way. And I just really appreciate you calling attention to our beautiful, wonderful Ginny. Yeah, thank you, Claire, for your voicemail. I mean, in some ways, Snape is not wrong. I think Harry does get a lot of special treatment at the school. I mean, I think the conclusions that I would draw from that are different than Snape's. <laughs> Snape thinks that Harry should get the same maltreatment as others who have been traumatized, like Ginny or like Neville, when actually what it ought to be is that all of these students should be recognized. They're their traumas and their wounds and their injuries should be recognized and all of them should be supported in the way that Harry so often is. So Snape's not wrong, but he's wrong. And he's wrong for all the right reasons that you cite. So thank you, Claire, for your really heartfelt and observant reading of Ginny's character throughout these books. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Today, we are going to take a break from what we normally do during this time in saying names of members of our community who have been submitted by other listeners, because Matt and I want to talk about a member of our community who we loved and recently lost, and that is Judith Giller Linewall. Judith passed away last week. She was 30 years old. She was one of the founding members of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text first community group that started in Cambridge in 2015. And when Casper and I stopped leading that local group, she was one of the people who stepped up to handle it. She was one of the three original facilitators. And she was kind and generous and welcoming and funny. And she was at our very first Harry Potter Sacred Text live show. And Matt, I know that you had her as a student. Yeah, Judith was a student of mine at HGS. I teacher. I used to teach one of the required courses for incoming master's students. And so I've had a lot of these students, like hundreds. And I remember some students and some students I remember for not so great reasons, but Judith was memorable for all the best reasons. I mean, I still remember exactly where she sat in the classroom. I remember her own openness, her own openness to discovery, to others, to learning. I think unique among the many students that, that I've had the privilege to teach at Harvard, she, she just really was present to learning, present to the new, present to being with others and allowing others to transform her in a way that's really rare and a real gift. And she was a really rare gift in my classroom and to Harvard. Yeah, I got to know her in that blurry line of chaplain and friend because she was a member of our sort of congregation, but also I just liked her so much. And so I would go and visit her in the hospital a lot. And what was so striking is that I would go ostensibly, theoretically, to take care of her. And she just always took care of me. I was so uncomfortable with the fact that she was in pain. She suffered from chronic illness for a long time. And she just was always the one who was like 
bringing the joy and the reality. And she was very good at advocating for herself and was like really relentless in the best way in fighting a medical system that was just not designed to take care of her adequately. And her illness made her studies at HDS to become a chaplain longer and much more difficult than they should have been. But she was just so steadfast in her commitment to spending her life accompanying people in moments of duress and pain. And even though she passed away before she was able to become a chaplain, she spent her life doing that, accompanying people. You know, I know that Judith was in pain a lot of the time when she was in my classroom, and she she had every reason to be impatient and every reason to be abrupt or terse or just over it. And again, that made her openness and her generosity that much more remarkable and noticeable and meaningful. Yeah, she was really remarkable. We don't want to demand of our friends and community members who are in pain to find that within themselves. Yet Judith, with all the pain she was in, I like cannot remember a moment of her being snappy or impatient, which is just not something that she owed anyone. And yet it was really remarkable. So I know that I will miss her for the rest of my life and that her memory is a blessing to all of us who work on Harry Potter and the sacred text and to our entire community. And to the Harvard community too. Yeah. Vanessa, now is the time when we will offer blessings for characters from this chapter. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Harry. I think for two reasons. One, this sounds like a really bad nightmare they had. And one of the things that we say about dreams is they weren't real. And I half agree with that sentence. They're not real in terms of like they don't impact our waking life. But we experience the horror and terror of the dreams. And while we are in them, they feel very real. And I'm sorry that he had to spend time in this place. But also, we're just getting a sense of how gruesome an opponent he has in Voldemort. Harry's opponent is someone who just has no regard for human life. And we know that Harry has so much regard for human life. And I just want to bless this kid for what he's experiencing on this night and what he is going to experience going forward. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless this week? I'd like to bless Frank Bryce, just for all the reasons that we named already in this episode. And at risk of restating some of them, you know, Frank lived a difficult life and had to face difficult things. But even in the last moment of his life, acted with dignity and courage and and trying to do right. And uh, he didn't really get what he deserved. Sounds like from the moment he went off to war until the moment he died, but he still lived with some integrity. And so blessings to Frank. Matt, next week, we will be reading book four, chapter two, through the theme of earnestness. Well, there's nothing more important. (laughs) I sincerely think that. Everyone, we have some very exciting reminders before we give our thanks. We have our camp, Come Away Magnificent People Camp. And tickets for that are on sale now. If you want to write a romance novel during NaNoWriMo, 
Ariana Nettleman and I are co-teaching a class, walking you through that with some incredible special guests. And we have a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text live show in October in Somerville, Massachusetts, me and Matt Potts. And you can find out more about that by going to harrypottersacredtext.com. And we hope to see you there in person. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Claire for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. Chapter One, The Riddle House. The villagers of Little Hangleton still called it The Riddle House, even though it had... Whoa, sorry. (laughs) The villagers of Little Hangleton still called it The Riddle House, 